0: Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston and I am your host. Today I have Scott Temke with me to discuss algorithms and the end of politics, how technology shapes twenty-first century American life, published in 2021 by Bristol University Press. Dr. Temke is a comparative historical sociologist interested in the study of race, class, technology, and inequality. His approach to these topics are greatly shaped by South African and Caribbean critiques of the Anglo-American liberal tradition. Presently, he is working on a series of projects broadly aimed at retheorizing what sufficient democratic infrastructure looks like through bringing Southern materialist perspectives to bear upon issues greatly shaped by modernity. Most of Dr. Timke's work involves archival methods, historiography, and eco econometrics. He ran a two-year multi-site ethnography from 2006 to 2008 and conducted a national survey in 2019. He also has a growing interest in how computational social science methods can be used to help inquiries in political economy. Dr. Timke recently held a tenure post at the University of the West Indies. He has a PhD in communications from Simon Fraser University and a master's and bachelor of arts degree in political studies from the University from a university in South Africa, welcome to the show, Dr. Tim-, Tim Key.
1: Thanks, Michael. That's a great introduction.
0: Excellent. So, to to start off our conversation today, how did you come about this project, and, and, and what um, attracted you to looking at algorithms of uh, uh, of technology and 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 its draw towards you know 21st century American life? I mean, I think
1: that there are sort of a couple of vectors that brought me. Into this project, I mean, the first thing is that it sort of is an outgrowth of a previous work that I did. I, I did a book in two thousand seventeen called Capital State Empire that looked at the role of capitalism and how capitalism creates constraints. And I said that this sort of characterizes uh, the American imperial mode of living, how sort of Americans live in you know imp- empire today. You know, and it's sort of its various aspects regarding like the security state's encroachment on digital and civil liberties the historical impulse to weaponize communication technologies. there is sort of this general sort of ecosystem of digital coercion that we sort of see at the everyday level. I mean, to speak a little bit about uh, the everyday experience in the United States, we see how sort of black people, for example, are heavily surveilled, how they're heavily targeted by security forces. And these are the types of things that sort of brought my attention to algorithms. How do algorithms start to mediate these relationships? What do they show what do they cloud? What kind of role do they play in organizing, shaping, determining, uh, and maybe in some cases creating emancipatory moments, so that we can have, you know, ideally better ways of living.
0: And at first glance, when I think about technology, I, I think that, oh, it must be innocent. Uh, it's, just, it's just technology. It's just entertainment. It's fun. It's leisure. But one of the things that you uh, just brought up in, in your introduction of this book is that um, it can be coercive. It can uh, have some dangers. Could you talk a bit more about how it's not as innocent as it may seem at first glance?
1: Yeah, I think – we generally, in communication studies, we have this idea that more communication equals better, right? We have we if we're in any difficulty, if we talk to each other more, problems will get resolved. I I think that there's a little bit of value in revisiting that that set of assumptions, sometimes more communication can be worse. And I think the same thing is sort of generally true with technology sometimes. Sometimes the more we add technology to a problem, we end up misunderstanding what the problem actually is. We tend to look to technology as some sort of messiahistic impulse that can solve the problems that we have without sort of really understanding or attempting to understand their social quotients what types of social elements may be at the heart of the problem that we're now trying to apply technology to solve in other words what i'm trying to say is that oftentimes there's a conflict of domains we want to use technology to solve social problems because often the resources we have to solve social problems you know is either evaporated or too constrained or simply isn't feasible in a, in a particular set of circumstances and so we turn to technology as just this, this hammer and this tool to try, accomplish, and make progress. Uh, but sometimes it's a misapplication, I think.
0: So sometimes technology creates new problems. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, it can create new problems,
1: but it can also not be the perfect, the perfect solution to the problem. Um, one of these things is that, you know, we, we treat it as this neutral entity without understanding it has its skews and biases of its own. We tend to think of so in the case of algorithms that's just it's just math uh, but these things have you know not necessarily intentions but they have ramifications they distribute and skew and allocate resources in ways that sometimes are a little bit imperceptive to the everyday person and so we see this for example when it comes to sort of like how uh, algorithms are involved in racial bias or sentencing um, software that these things can sometimes end up uh, uh, working against people who are very marginalized and very vulnerable but at the everyday level we say oh well this is a neutral technological entity there's no human actor involved you know of course the solution is going to be just but i think that that's mistaken
0: and that's where, uh, and that's where you're getting at, as technology being a way to reshape not, uh, not only politics but also the daily life of Americans, right? Uh, about how it was designed, uh, with innocence, but having real impact. Technology having a real impact on our everyday interactions and on uh, political outcomes, right? Yes.
1: So I call this the great simplification, and I sort of mean it in sort of two senses. Uh, if we take, take just as an example, as a metaphor, we have sort of Google Maps, right? And we use it as our, a as our day-to-day navigation device. The Google Maps provides us a set of driving instructions. We want to go from point A to point B. Uh, and we follow these set of instructions fairly easily. And it sort of gives us a sort of path that gu- guides us along. And it's sort of very simple. It's very user-friendly. It's very helpful for us to, to use. And it's that sort of ease of use that we embrace because as a, really life is very, is, it really incredibly complicated uh, so every type of convenience that we have at our disposal we want to embrace so there's a great simplification with our technology processes to try and make life a little bit easier a little bit more uncomplicated at the same time though and this is a bit of the the, the paradox over here while these things are becoming simpler we ourselves are losing our ability to evaluate what they in fact are doing to us we you know how many of us are coders? How many of us understand the math behind the GPS software that navigates these platforms? How many of us can actually build and assemble these devices that we use on a day-to-day basis? So this great simplification is coming with a great cost that we sometimes don't even know the intimate details of the things that are guiding and rooting us along, along life. And so the question becomes, how sure can we be about what we're missing out on? To go back to the Google Maps example, there may be great restaurants along the side of the road that we just aren't able to access or see because a path is being set for us.
0: And, and the simplification is a product of, of this technology being one-dimensional. You mentioned that in your book, that it, that it's one-dimensional, meaning I think that uh, that it, it doesn't have a mind of its own. It's it's information that is based on input that then results in an output to a uh to a person or a set of persons based on keywords, based on, uh, based on historical uh, patterns that users have put into a system that results in a, in a unique uh, outcome for them, right? So, so what's missing from this uh, economic approach to making sense of society? I mean, what is this one-dimensional path?
1: I mean, I think you've you've got a you've did a great description over there. I think what we're doing is we're investing a considerable amount of computational reasoning, you know, uh, giving them automated and substantive decision-making power over our lives. And what this ends up doing is foreclosing politics. The more we automate our decisions about like how public space is to be organized, how societies are developed, it limits our ability to engage in the politics required to solve most of our problems the vast majority of our problems i believe are political ones not technological ones it's a question of how do we resolve uh political problems who has power who has the power to do what who is entrenched and doesn't want to do anything you know the the basic questions of who gets what why and how and instead you know by investing so much in like this one this one dimensional this flat understanding of how to change Uh, system structures relationships we don't have at our disposal we we sometimes forget that politics is about rewards and distribution who gets things and and for what reason the more we organize our, our politics around automating those decisions you know what guarantee do we have that the people who design those systems aren't going to use it to reward themselves so these are sort of we sometimes don't think in with great texture about these questions you know, particularly when you see like this, this general like enthusiasm for technology. Again, I use this idea that there's a lot of messiahistic thinking over here. If we just apply, you know, this widget or this gadget or this code or this piece or this algorithm to the problem, it'll sort of automatically or you know, it'll greatly simplify the process and make it easier for us to understand the problem. But I think, you know, as my previous remarks show, I think the exact opposite happens.
0: Yeah. it's... Uh life is more complicated than a simple exchange of, here, let me put this in and, and see what comes out, the, the the exchange system that the economy often has. Uh, I, I think that uh, what's also important to add to the equation would be qualitative methods or qualitative ways of understanding. Uh, I don't know that social media provides this necessarily because social media is itself an algorithm, right? But things like town hall meetings or... Uh, exchanges in public uh, coffee, coffee and conversation. These are all other forms of uh, of narrative. they are all other exchanges, but they have they're more qualitative in nature than they are quantitative, mathematical.
1: Oh, precisely, right? I, I think that you've hit the nail on the head over there. One of the things that we think about when it comes to code is we think of it as you know pure as as pure math or applied math by right, sets of you know, logic, uh, op, op, making opera, uh, making op, uh, operational decisions. But we sometimes forget that code itself is an infrastructure and a social space. And what I mean by a social space is that there's collective investment and involvement by a whole number of players and actors over the terms of work. How do we make this code? What is it to do? What is it to accomplish? If you want to think about it in a different way, Code is a form of material governance. Again, getting back to this idea of distributions, war, uh, uh, skews, and so on and so forth. Um, and because computation is sort of a site of struggle and an instrument in that struggle, one simply can't understand it as quantitative. It has these qualitative attributes. What values do we want to try to achieve? How much, what scope, what scale? And these these types of things don't really sometimes ex. Sets uh, set aside outside of the picture when it comes to talking about what technology is doing and how it's sort of shaping uh, social life.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned that they are made spaces with values and and uh, structures of their own. So they are contestable spaces that are constructed and, and reconstructed. Right. I I see something in there with the where where it's not just. A space that has one meaning but it continues to have meaning that is remade
1: yeah precisely and again if we have only some some of us partaking in these conversations or these questions of design and application well then we're missing out on a large part of what the general population wants what the public interest happens to be what the social goals happen to be one of the things that we is, is that code is often said oh it's elite enterprise it's a technical language and only people who have been well trained you know not to stretch the metaphor too much, but it's almost become a, you know, it's almost seen as a priesthood. Those who know will speak to the issues and that, and, us, and us in the pews will just listen and take our cues from the people at the, at the front of the stage, right? And I think that that sort of like that hierarchy about who, who speaks and who listens, you know, is very exclusionary. I mean, I think one of the things, just to sort of add, just to, add to that, is that we're trying to talk about like what I call the social question, you know, I, I think it's rather than talk about social problems, like how, you know, that leads us to think that these things have immediate solutions. We need to think about social questions. How do we understand the phenomenon around us and what kinds of ways of conceptualizing them may lead to better ways of uh, approaching them? So I think that when it comes to technology and a social question or computation, a social question, we need to think about, you know, how is our society organized and how and what role does Code, computation, data, algorithms play in advancing that mission, the public interest, or uh, hindering it.
0: So now let's get into a bit of, uh, of politics. What are the reactionary tendencies that that you say comes from ruling class? The yeah, what's their... How does the ruling class tend to uh, react? To this technology, to algorithms, to the uh, landscape that you mentioned in this book?
1: Well, I mean, I think that sort of requires us speaking a little bit about the broader picture of what's going on in the, in the United States. And, I mean, I don't want to sort of belabor the point, and it's sort of very hard to sort of get you know, graphics and um, charts sort of up on a podcast, but I think we need to just recognize more broadly that. Technology and technology companies are where the power resides in the United States. These are the engines of growth. These are the engines of wealth, and so people who, who are the shareholders of these companies have tremendous sway and clout, and they you know uh, are able to accumulate a massive amounts of wealth, which they are then able to spend in the political process. You know, more broadly, it's a truism that you know the United States is a capitalist society. That shareholder value is maximized by law, and that these companies that, you know, Microsoft, Google, Apple, so on and so forth, their sole purpose is to work in the technology sector, but to maximize shareholder value to try and make an exorbitant amount of profits. You know, profit in the technology sector is some of the highest in the world, and that's why these companies are so highly valued. Now, they do provide goods and services, and many of these goods and services are incredibly good. They're useful. People use them because there's a great utility to it. But at the same time, it often comes with a high rate of profit that goes to some and not all of us. And the problem then comes when people like George Bezos, for example, and just to sort of use him as an example, then start to invest the money that they accrue from Amazon, into the political process, and this sort of starts to have a de-democratizing effect. You know, so all the the values of American society, all the good things that are promised you know, equality, equality, justice, fairness you know start to then be eroded and corroded. And I think that's a bit of a problem over here. You know, it's also a problem because we it's not that we it's not that like, like we can just simply stop using these technological goods. I think that that idea. Is very foolish because obviously these things have great utility here's a question of how do we ensure that these companies are a bit more fairly organized and the fruits of these companies are a bit more fairly distributed
0: uh, so the uh, it's the power of special interests and the and the technocrats having an influence on on overall values and beliefs that are put out to the to the masses and only and having a limited number or a limited type of people who have the ability to to influence that narrative. Yeah, it's and again,
1: you know, people. You, you would take George Bezos for example. He's spent incredible amounts of money over the pandemic with Amazon. Uh, At the same time, he's used that to buy the Washington Post, or he previously used the profits to buy the Washington Post. He's able to construct the narratives that sort of lionize his position to say that, well, we need capitalists because who is going to create these technologies if it wasn't for the capitalists at the helm? But, I mean, we forget that it's not George Bezos making Amazon, it's ordinary people who are putting things into confinements at, at consignment centers, who are driving trucks, who have designed the code to ensure that your goods go from the uh, across the supply chain and end up at your house. There's an incredible number of people working in a very organized, coordinated fashion to ensure that the good that you get, or that you've asked for, that you've requested, gets to your front door. Uh, and so sometimes I think we just put too much esteem at the people at the very top, without recognizing all the contributions of all the people across the entire organization.
0: And part of that, I think, might be with this American dream, right? That this attitude of American dream that we have in the United States of, of individuals create their own dynasty, rather than uh, there being larger structural forces that allow for, for such a dynasty to exist.
1: Yeah, so precisely. I mean, I think this is also about the narratives that we tell ourselves about, you know, algorithms ICT we think of them as as creating like a level playing field anyone we go we tell ourselves anyone can create a blog and soon that they'll become a Substack, and then people will be able to monetize it or you can start a YouTube channel and with a little bit of effort one can start and grow an audience and you this now can become your professional you your living but you know these certainly, many people have made uh, living this way. At the same time, though, that's only half the picture. This is that's again what I, the, the one-dimensional aspect of it. You know, we start to see, you know, how there's echo chambers across the entire uh, ICT realm. We see massive market monopolies where it's Google or Apple or Microsoft, and they each have their own specialisation and they don't really compete with each other. Because they share the same shareholders, we start to see monopolies of knowledge that create exclu- exclusions and unequal capacities in the world. Now, uh, you know, we, you know, it's a bit of a truism, and I mean it's a bit of a joke, but if you're on page two of, of Google's PageRank, well, there's no visibility or very, very you know, really not a lot of visibility for your work. So all of these types of monopolies also cross-cut by race, class, gender, sexuality, you know. making making it easier for some to advance, but not everyone.
0: You mentioned Bezos, but also uh, Donald Trump. Uh, He was an interesting um, president, and socially particularly, because he was somewhat of an uh, insider socially, based on his his class, right, based on the sheer amount of money that he had. But then, at the same time, he was a political outsider. He was different. He was a... uh, you know, some saw him as I think, maybe dangerous even.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of interesting features about Trump sort of as a phenomenon, as a person, and sort of the types of politics that, that he goes, that, that he sort of perpetuates. I don't know if we'll be able to get down to all of these types of things, but the one thing that I'll say is that he does sort of, to me, from someone who's outside, from someone who's, you know, watching from abroad, he does seem to represent a kind of, uh, caesarianism the idea that if you just allow one person to come to the fore, he, they can clean up uh, politics. But I think that sort of misunderstands you know, the types of crises that come about. So um, we can sort of recognize that the United States is stuck in a bit of a stalemate politically, you know, not only about polarization, but even about how its basic structures are organized, how some Senate seats will always go to Republicans, and some Senate seats will always go to Democrats. And there's very few contested spaces. You start to then add questions of gerrymandering. You add questions about money and politics. You add questions, all these other types of things, too. And there's the great stalemate where these, where these two blocks are unable to really sort of triumph over one another. There's no definitive victory, if you will, at least to sort of set the, the, the terms of the next decade or two. And there's no, like, FD, at the moment, there's no FDR moment where the, the terms of politics are set for the next 30 years or there's no uh, you know, uh, moment where, there's, where Johnson comes to power and the terms of politics are set for the next 30 years. Reagan sort of set the terms for politics for 30 years. But that sort of, like, neoliberal era is now sort of fragmenting people. There's a great dissatisfaction with it. And so you have this all grand organic crisis and both of the main parties don't seem to be able to solve it. They're certainly not going to come together and try to solve it, but they can't decisively beat each other to solve it either. And so there's this hope, I think, of someone like Trump rising to the fore and clearing the table away. Uh, And I think this is what happens when your politics is sort of stalemated. And sort of getting back to the question of algorithms, when you start to have all your politics automated and decided by politics, there's frustration that you can't solve political problems or you don't understand the political Questions appropriately, there's going to even be more frustration and more resentment, and you know you worry what's going to happen to the American democracy when all the ways to solve politics or to do politics and to do politics well are sort of taken away from you. You ultimately have these authoritarian figures that rise up, but they themselves can't do anything either. Now, I'm certainly not a fan of Donald Trump's political goals, but I think we can all recognize when you take a step back that despite you know, all the bad things that he, that he did do at, at least from my perspective, you know, a lot, a lot of the things that he was that he wasn't able to actually even implement because he himself was hamstrung. So, so like there's, this is the difficulty is that, you know, politics is so sedimentary. It's such an organic crisis and no one can really sort of solve it. And what happens to society when you get in, when it does decade after decade of this condition people start to think about very extreme ways of trying to deal with things and given for example the amount of the number of guns in that society you know it, it it's very frightening for, from an outside perspective
0: yeah it's a, a product of political institutionalization right where there are expectations values beliefs that are embedded in the system that doesn't allow uh, doesn't uh, allow for is that conducive for a political outsider like Donald Trump uh, or even uh, Bernie Sanders, who we're getting ready to talk about.
1: Yeah. I mean, it,
0: it, it's, you
1: yeah, know, there's this very good book that written, written a couple of years ago about how the party decides. And so even when your political parties aren't really contested, you know, people get very, very frustrated. And so, you know, yeah, there's lots of things to say about Trump's election to power, but I think you know there's element of truth to it when you can see it as a, a vote of protest. You know, uh, working class, working class people. And again, Trump's coalition is, is more is not just white working class people. The things are more complicated than that. But when people who are very frustrated uh, with how politics is organized, you know,
0: throw a brick through the window, this is this is the result. And uh, so. If we could shift over to Bernie Sanders, he, he also attracted, I think, maybe even the average working class person. One uh, a, a big thing about his approach is, is it was grassroots. It was uh, to, to draw attention to a class struggle from below rather than you know from above. And and, and I don't know, it could be argued maybe even both ways as to whether Trump was using his cla- social class, excuse me, economic class, as money, his self-made... Self-made person, and I'm putting air quotes up. Uh, you can't see them right now, but uh, Donald Trump uh, coming from above with all of his money to be able to draw the attention of the working class population. But I think Bernie Sanders may have also took a, taken a similar approach to to draw the everyday person. How how has that changed the future of the election process? Well, I mean, to, to go
1: back to the, this question over here, I think Bernie Sanders, much like Trump, and again, they, they have very different types of politics and they are courting different kinds of people and they have different types of political visions. But both of them, I think, one finds an exp- uh, people are drawn to them because they represent something different, a different way of doing politics. In Trump's case, they there to clear the table and start afresh with sort of like the businessman, you know, that that, that kind of trope. Um you know, in, in his case he claims to be you claim to be someone who is uncorruptible because he already had the money, but one forgets that one needs to be corrupt in order to accumulate that amount of money in the first <laughs> place, right? Uh, in Sanders' case, you know, you know, he's very, very far from a, a communist, you know. He's very, very far from a socialist, he's very, very far from uh, a democratic socialist, he's a, he's a social liberal, you know, he's, he's very much sort of a new dealer. And what his basic play is like We should try to decommodify healthcare or at least we should move the 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 price point from uh, you know from the point of service somewhere else we should try to fund healthcare through you know an expanded tax tax base rather than doing it at the point of service so very very you know like from the european perspective would be a very very meek program but in the united states in in that particular political spectrum this is seen as sort of a radical approach and so, you know, to the extent that, you know, you have, uh, you know, socialists in, in support of Sanders it's because that's the only game in town at the moment, right? There's very, there's, there's very few other people who have the clout, the name recognition, the credibility to try and make these kinds of cases. The thing I find very fascinating about Sanders is, you know, his ability to always try sort of center uh, movement first, you know, it's, not me, we he has you know he has these types of slogans that he uses on a day- to-day basis. I think people you know get uh, gravitate to that because you know in the, in, in the politics right in American politics from the outside, you always have these tropes of like the pork barrel politician or someone who's very interested in transactional politics like the idea of you know Schumer, you know someone always doing inside deals over here where Saunders on the other hand has this persona that's much more transparent about much more about trying to advance common interests. Rather than you know you know uh, a, a more narrow set of interests, I think people you know, galvanized towards it.
0: And part of what allowed people like, to uh, to gravitate towards it was uh, an environment where it was unsettled uh, politically and economically. So uh, people wanting wanting something different, wanting something, uh, wanting change away from Trump and. And uh, what's interesting, though, is is that Bernie Sanders did not end up being the, uh, the major ticket person. The Democratic Party, in some ways, uh, sort of pushed against him because they didn't see... They didn't see him as the face of the Democratic Party. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the other thing is there's also structural, financial difficulties.
1: You know, not to get too sort of granular here, but, you know, the Clintons, it's the Clinton's Democratic Party. It it has been for the last, you know, 25 years or so, they've been able to put, you know, I really just like this term. It is it's a common term in the United States. They've been able to put their surrogates in positions of power, you know, and through, you know, planting supporters in key positions, they're able to sort of ensure that the party more or less does their bidding, not to sort of make it sort of conspiratorial, but this is how politics works. You know, this is the nature of, of how political parties organize and mobilize and deploy uh, support i think one of the things that when it comes to Sanders in this 2016 run you know is that where there's this whole you know belief that clinton was going to hillary clinton was going to be the democratic nominee that this is a fait accompli this is something pushed down from a top you know for the average democratic party supporter regardless of whether they were in the clintonian mold you know i think there's an element of that that didn't quite sit right that you're told that it's this person's chance. And I think that sort of offends the American sensibility about, like, you know, we should have a fair and open contest about who's going to represent us.
0: And uh, are we still experiencing, as a result of, of the Trump era, uh, an institutionalization of his hierarchy? Uh, and, and will Donald Trump, you know, exist in politics for decades yet to come i mean that's a tough question so i'll, I'll give a bit
1: of a story when i wrote my first book in 2017 I, you know you have to deliver the book, the manuscripts a bit beforehand and i made this prediction you know just beforehand into the the publisher i was like yeah and when hillary clinton wins and this will be the outline of her presidency that there's the last thousand words and then i was having a look at election night i'm like oh god i have to rewrite these last thousand words <laughs> so i'm very loath to sort of make big scale projections about these things at the moment because you know current affairs are complicated and things change on contingency and chance what i will say though is that you know trump seems to have got quite a constituency in american in a, in a republican party I mean, it's hard to sort of put figures to these things, but I get the sense that at least half of diehard Republicans, you know, believe in, the, in Trumpian politics, that a strong man coming to clear the field is the way to, is this way to solve all the problems in the American life. And I think that that's a very sort of dangerous political coalition. It takes a long long time to build coalitions have them fray and have them change their minds it takes it takes a lot of work to 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 find new ways of doing politics and that's half the of you know the republican party is inclined or is at least curious about this way of solving uh, problems doesn't bode bode well i think i think that we will be seeing legacies of trump for considerable amount of time politically and then institutionally I mean, we know how sort of Trumps has did, and a massive amount of judicial appointees. You know, the Supreme Court. I think people speak a little bit too much about the Supreme Court, but it does matter. You know, these things are going to have long tail consequences that will be, I think, haunting or you know, shaping American uh, politics for 20, 30 years. I don't think it will have, ever have the same type of peak as it did in 2015, 2016,
0: But I, know, I think it will still be a feature in American political life. Because they make major decisions in terms of what policies are accepted into society or rejected, or at least in the United States as 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 a society.
1: Yeah, and and also it you know it's a constituency that needs to be courted. So in the same way that uh, certain types of pro life groups. Have to be courted in a Republican in a Republican in a Republican primary, regardless of whether the Republican uh, politician believes in these things or not, he still has to court that constituency. And I think the same thing is going to be true for people who have support Trump at the moment. Their constituency, you know, so people will have to speak to them, even if they don't really want to seek that support. They only need that support in order to to move forward. And that, and I think those types of messages will be around for a long, long time.
0: So, now let's get to uh, a a little bit of a different topic about misinformation and practices of misinformation in journalism, and uh, uh, particularly online journalism in a modern society. Uh, How are these misinformation practices a product of modern society, modernity?
1: I mean, I think
0: the one thing about sort of capitalism
1: and to speak about this sort of very directly is capitalism itself is a kind of misinformation and not to get, you know, over philosophical at this point in time, but capitalism requires us to misidentify uh, the sources of value in our life. We attribute you know things to uh, the skill of the business rather than the people who build, uh, you know, well, in this case, you know, uh, computers, code, data, so on and so forth. We tend to misascribe where value, the source of value comes from. And so this is, I think, is one of the basic you know, questions of misinformation. We give a lot of we give a lot of esteem. We lionize the rich, we lionize the wealthy, and say that they are the wealth creators. That's a term that's sort of very common in the United States, forgetting that they don't build things. They they don't make things. They may make decisions, but those decisions are you know, are complica- complex sets made by many people who have provided a sets of inputs. It's not like one person is making a decision. There's multiple management teams, multiple sources of data entry. So decisions are the result of multiple people working to decide how things ought to move forward. And so like we have a fundamental misunderstanding of where value comes from, where what is worth pursuing. You know, the thing, money is a means to an end, not the end itself. And so often in the United States, we see you know, the, the relentless accumulation for its own sake, uh, you know, bigger house, a bigger yachts, uh, more money, You know, so on and so forth. There's this, all this sort of flash keeping up the, with the Joneses where the real source of value is a quality of friendships, of the care that you have with the people close to you, the leisure time to pursue um, the things that make you happy. Yeah. So ultimately, as soon as we start to be, become so preoccupied with one thing, in this case wealth, it sort of is to the detriment of all the things we actually could care about. And again, it comes back to this idea that wealth is one dimensional.
0: So it's, and this isn't brand new, right? This has been occurring since the Industrial Revolution, since the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, and beyond into into today's economy is that is that accurate
1: yes no i mean i think one of the things about sort of capitalism is it's a very sort of enduring system it's been around for 200 years in its current form and you know 200 years you know in a, in a previous form before that one of the things about like capitalism more broadly into this to get to your question about sort of journalism is if you have a look at how questions of labor or class are dealt with or not dealt with in the united states these things are hardly ever raised when it comes to sort of our major sociological categories, uh, race, class, gender, you know, we see a lot of questions about gender, and we see a lot of questions about race, but we see very, very few questions about class. Class is sort of very much the invisible element in American mm-hmm. in American life. People are very open, and very willing to talk about those other two, and then even subordinate as, you know, things of sort of... Are equally important, you know, like sexuality, so on and so forth, but you know, class is very much a missing component, and I think that's sort of for reason. If you have like major journalistic enterprises that exist to make money first, and they just happen to be making money in the news business, well, are they going to be talking about you know unionization drives? Are they going to be talking about class matters? Are they going to be talking about like how people are poor? Or they're going to be studying the narrative that if you just work a little bit harder, you too can have a bigger yacht. You too can have a bigger yacht.
0: So it creates a, a, a binarial audience. It's either one you know, person watching one specific area of news or others looking at a, at a different area of news based on, uh, based on personal beliefs and values that they think are associated with uh, the news providers that they consume.
1: Yeah, no, so, so news very much journalism becomes almost a kind of, you know, you sell to an audience you, you, rather than you convey information to the public. You know, your Fox News viewer, for example, has a specific set of traits. And so this now becomes, you know, a cultural production and cultural consumption. Your MSNBC viewer you know, has the same thing. They have a set of traits, they have a set of aspirations, so on and so forth. And you now sell these things. It's, you know, know, do you like carrot cake or do you like chocolate cake? Rather than saying, like, you know, what types of things are nutritious for your body. Yeah. Maybe I do like cake, though. I will have to say I do like cake. But, yeah, the the larger point still stands.
0: And in this case, the thing that remains hidden for these uh, news providers would be class, right? Because it's taboo to talk about that, as as you just mentioned.
1: Yes, yes. And without sort of understanding class, questions of labor... We misunderstand a good portion of the United States, and this goes back to sort of like the types of foundational myths about the United States is that there's this open frontier that everyone can be. You know, the European class structure doesn't exist in the United States. There's no aristocracy. Everyone can become their own man. But we know that that's not true. We know that there's been a gilded age. We know that there are people like George Bezos. You know that we know that there's many, many wealthy families that you know through their wealth have you know, accumulated advantages. And we know that many people depend on their zip code will only be able to reach so far in life. These things are obvious but unspoken. You know, there's always this idea that you know, one if one has heroically struggles and sacrifices enough, one will be able to rise up above it. And you know, we see this in the journalism too. We see sort of good news stories about this person who is a janitor was able to send his child to Harvard. Yeah, yeah, and we see these types of stories. Emerge all the time, but that's also kind of misinformation too, because how many people who work very hard as Genesis are able to send their child to Harvard? you know, one in a, one in multiple millions. So you know, these things without information in them, we don't really have a full understanding of what goes on in society. And to get back to the question about how does technology get involved in all these things? As soon as we go back to this this idea about the Google Maps, you know, about routes that are predetermined for us. Once these these channels are, are created for us, and we follow along without understanding how to, how they're created and what's outside of them, you know, we get to the point where we are not able to fully perceive the environment around us and the social relations that exist therein.
0: Yeah, the and the, and, uh, the interesting piece about how how the United States is believed to not have an aristocracy or, uh, you know, an, a, an elite social class of people, uh, kings and queens and and uh, uh, and all of that in the United States, but instead a, a, a Gilded Age in which uh, a wealth is what brought people to the top and gave them great uh, ruling power. Uh, yeah. So do you think that there, that the social class in the United, the social class in the United States of the ruling elite was gilded through, through wealth? Do you think that, uh, it takes a similar path as, as the, uh, European aristocracy, uh, the same, the same type of power or just, okay, not the same path, a different path, but a similar form of power that they have as a result of economic class that gave them access to social capital, cultural capital, and uh, the ability to create change.
1: I mean, I, th- I think in summary, you know, uh, American bourgeois life is very different from European arist- aristocratic life. That said, the types of social inequality that comes about is exactly the same. I remember reading a, a graph that of wealth distribution in France in 1760 you know, to 1790, and looking at wealth distribution in the United States in 2016, and... The top twenty percent in the United in the United States owns as much wealth as the top twenty percent in France at the same amount of time just before the revolution. So the, the same types of gradients where you know ninety percent of people own very very little and you know the top ten percent, the top one percent, the, the top you know point zero zero one percent own enormous amounts of wealth. You know they have because others have not, and these types of Functional equivalents are exactly the same. Now, the question is not about like the, how what types of goods we have, because I'm sure you know we have fridges and, to- and toasters, and people in France didn't have those types of things. But the question is, do we have a, the same? level Do we have a greater say in our society as you know the ordinary French peasant in 1760? And the question yeah. is, not really. And so, what use is having? fridges, and toasters if we don't really have a, a genuine say about what kinds of technologies we want to develop and
0: why. And then we also have a political infrastructure that argues for a democratic republic that is giving say to the people, whereas in an aristocracy, the, uh, the have-nots, the peasants weren't really expected to have any influence over, over their communities,
1: And this gets back to this idea of misinformation, right? Because there's a difference between the stories we tell ourselves and what's really sort of going on. And again, because if we get to the point where algorithms start to make all of our decisions and start to channel us to see some things and not see other things, we uh, we soon lose the capacity to realize how much the haves have and how little
0: the haves have not. Yeah, and it almost becomes an illusion, right? Just short of uh, brainwashing.
1: Yeah, yeah. In, in Marxism, this, this sort of phenomenon is called mystification. And I think our social relations are very much mystified. We're not able to fully perce- perceive what's sort of going on. And while narratives and stories are very useful for us to help organize our lives and make sense of them, you know, there's also a difference between what we tell ourselves
0: and what's actually happening. So our algorithms a new operator of society, of the masses?
1: I think that they certainly do
0: start to structure
1: a society in a way that, you know, those who have power and wealth are using algorithms to continue to get more wealth and power, and so unless these things are dem- democratically decided upon, we're soon going to, you know, be locked out. The idea in the book I use this idea of mm-hmm. politics being foreclosed, and I greatly worry about that. That if we don't deal with these problems, you know, the democracy we have. It's only going to be in a constitution. It's only going to be on a piece of paper. It's not going to be something that's going to be lifted. It's not going to be something that's going to be felt.
0: And I think algorithm can, algorithms can serve as a form of sedative to allow people to accept their current state of, uh, con, or their current condition. You
1: no, know, precisely. And this is sort of the, the great sadness, I think, Is and this maybe sort of be my final point, is that we think of all the capacities that algorithms, code, data, ICTs can bring and they can bring great emancipatory and liberatory power. You know, Of course, they have their own inherent biases, their own inherent skews. But the question is how are they deployed and for whose purpose are they deployed? Are they deployed in a democratic fashion? Do we all have a say in how they're going to be deployed? For what purpose? How to enrich our lives? Or are they going to be deployed to serve the few that may have some secondary benefit for us? And I think at the moment, the, the
0: second is more likely than the first. And then where do you think the the role of the scientist is in all of this? Because in some ways, scientific data gets pushed to the, the background, but I, I think that, that scientists have a, a real say in, uh, in algorithms and in the use of social media, not from a user experience approach, the UX worker, or whatever it might be, but I think a, a scientist who – to talk through the consequences that algorithms might have. I think technologists can take a
1: great sort of template or can learn quite a lot from sort of climate scientists. I mean, climate scientists themselves have had a bit of a check in post about how uh, plainly they're speaking about the difficulties that they, that they confront and what their data shows. At the same time, they made tremendous strides in the last decade to say, Look, carbon has passed 400 parts per million in 2013. We need to deal with these things. You know, this is what industrial pollutants are doing to uh, to us. You know, and I think sort of the more technologists start to speak plainly about the types of harms that happen when they when their technologies are deployed in undemocratic ways, I think more of us will have a better sense of what's sort of going on. Uh, so, I think for me, uh, I would like to see more activist technologists out there. So, sort of following the same thing from sort of climate climate scientists.
0: Oh, and I think there's a perfect match there. It's just getting out of the you know the ivory tower, if we must call it that, but getting out and, and having practitioners and scholars shake hands and, and dwelling in the same areas to to create an overall better society, because social media technology already has the attention of its audience, and if scholars can figure out ways to speak in languages that the practitioners and uh, users can understand Wow, what better of an outcome could come from that.
1: No, precisely. Like, I mean, you know, YouTube,
0: you know, uh, and all
1: these other types of platforms are incredibly useful and powerful in this regard. And I think, you know, uh, the more sort of scholars use them, uh, you know, uh, not, not to say that that automatically brings success, but it certainly changes the odds.
0: Well, unfortunately, uh, we've come to the point of the uh, interview where we've run out of time. Uh, but there is one dying question that I have. What is it that you're working on now, Dr. Timke? Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think
1: a little bit about fintech, you know, financial technology on the African continent and how American legislation around Anti-terror laws and anti-drug financing laws shape the, the the ability for African populations to get bank accounts, and, and there's a bit of a complicated relationship over there. But I am thinking about how fintech is both emancipatory and oppressive on the African continent. How you know what are the goods and what are the bads that these types of technological platforms uh, are you know bringing? What types of conveniences?
0: But what types of constraints are there?
1: Uh, are, they, are they bringing on everyday life?
0: Also looking at it from a global standpoint of uh, not only the United States and the relationship with Africa, but but global financial industry. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, again,
1: one of the things is that Wall Street, London, Frankfurt; these are places that have considerable sway through money and credit. Uh, but most of us, you know, uh, you know, most of us don't know much about it. And so I'm trying to figure out a little bit more about how finance decisions made in these places affect, you know. Um, uh, People in Nairobi, Johannesburg, Harare, so on
0: and so forth. I'm intrigued. You caught my curiosity. I look forward to to reading it, whether it comes out in a in a book in a year or two, or uh, even in articles. So so, please keep me updated. We'll do. We'll do. All right. Thank you again. My name is Michael Johnston, and today I have uh, Doctor. I had Doctor. Jim to discuss. His most recent book, Algorithms and the End of Politics, How Technology Shapes 21st Century American Life. Thank you again for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Michael. I appreciate
0: it. All right. Have a great day.